For a physician investigator perspective on CLL and NHL, I met with Dr. Brad Call, who began by discussing how he explains these diseases to his patients. The way I think of CLL and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma biologically and the way I try to explain it to patients is the following. I say that these are cancers of your lymphatic system, and that doesn't have a whole lot of meaning to people, so then I need to explain what the lymphatic system is. And basically, the lymphatic system is a system in our bodies that exists so that the cells of our immune system have a place to hang out. So we have lymph nodes all over our body, and we have lymphoid tissue all over our body, like tonsils and the spleen. And these are basically the places where the cells of our immune system live so that when they are called upon to respond to some infection, they're able to do so. The analogy I use is your lymph nodes are sort of like military bases. And inside the bases live the troops. And the troops are the cells of your immune system. And if a patient develops lymphoma, one of these troops or one of the cells of your immune system is turned cancerous malignant, which means it's growing in an out-of-control way, making more and more and more of itself such that these malignant cells accumulate. And when they accumulate, they eventually accumulate to such a high degree that they start to actually enlarge the size of the lymph node or the lymph organ in which they are replicating. And because all of these structures of our lymph system, all of these lymph nodes are connected by lymph channels and by blood vessels, It's conceptually more useful to think of lymphomas more like a leukemia. I think it's more useful to think of them like a systemic disease as opposed to a solid tumor, which tends to grow in a single place for a long time and then it, quote, metastasizes and many times solid tumors can be cured surgically. That's really not the way we should think about the lymphoid malignancies. We should think of these as diseases in which the malignant cells traffic very readily from one lymph node to another or to the blood and back to the lymph nodes and to the blood and to the bone marrow and back to the lymph nodes. So conceptually, I think it's better to think of the lymphomas as systemic diseases, more like leukemias. And most of the time when we see patients with lymphomas, the disease is fairly widespread at diagnosis. Now, relevant to this, can you explain what B cells are? Sure. B cells eventually become plasma cells. And plasma cells are the cells in our body which produce antibodies. So if we have an infection in our lifetime, we will have a clone of B cells respond to that infection. So when patients develop a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or CLL, are these B cells? So CLL is a disease of B cells, and most non-Hodgkin's lymphomas are diseases of B cells. About 85% of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma are derived from B lymphocytes. And it's not completely clear why that's so much more common in B cells than T cells, although there are some pretty good theories for that. So most of the time when we're talking about lymphoma and all the time when we're talking about CLL, we're talking about disease that have come from B cells. How is that determined clinically? If you have a patient who has a lymphoma or CLL, do you actually determine whether or not it's B or T cell? We do. Usually that's with a special test called flow cytometry, or it can be done with what's called immunohistochemistry. And basically what they're doing in the lab is seeing what kind of proteins are expressed on the surface of those cells. And B cells have characteristic proteins on their surface that are very easy to identify. T cells have proteins on their surface, which are very easy to identify. So it's usually not very difficult to sort out whether a malignancy is coming from T cells or from B cells. 
Now, is that important to determine in terms of the treatment? It is. In general, B-cell malignancies have a better prognosis than T-cell malignancies. There are a few exceptions, but that's generally a true statement. And there are some therapies that, for example, only work in B-cell malignancies, and the obvious example would be rituximab. Rituximab is a monoclonal antibody that targets a protein called CD20. And CD20 is only expressed on B-cells. CD20 is not expressed on T-cells, so it makes no sense to give a patient with a T-cell malignancy rituximab either as a single agent or with chemotherapy. So it is important to sort out what kind you're dealing with. What do we know about exactly how the anti-tumor effect of rituximab? Obviously, it's a very commonly utilized agent. How does it work? So rituximab is given intravenously, and it circulates throughout the patient's blood, and it will bind to any cell in the body that expresses the CD20 molecule. And if it's a B-cell lymphoma or CLL, they express CD20, and so rituximab will bind to those cells And it literally coats the cell. And when it does that, it really tries to trick the patient's immune system to come in and fight the cancer. And it can do that in a couple of ways. One way is it can activate a series of proteins in our bodies called complement. So if these tumor cells get coated with rituximab, complement gets activated and complement proteins come in and stack on top of the cells and literally punch holes in the cell membrane, which causes the cells to die. That's one way we think rituximab kills these cancer cells, and it's probably the way the circulating cells are killed, the cells that are circulating through the blood. So there's this interesting phenomenon with rituximab in which we see a lot of patients get bad infusion reactions with the first dose, and all the nurses see this commonly, and they can be fevers, shakes, chills, pain, bronchospasm. And it's very much a first-dose phenomenon. So you might ask, well, why doesn't it happen with the second dose and the third dose and the fourth dose? And it's because rituximab very reliably and rapidly depletes the circulation of circulating B cells. So by the time the patient comes back for the next rituximab infusion, whether it be a week later or three weeks later, there's literally no B cells left in the blood. And so with no B cells around, people aren't going to get this infusion reaction due to complement activation. So that's an example of where the biology sort of ties into a very specific toxicity. So complement is one way the cells are killed, particularly the cells circulating in the blood. It's probably not the most important mechanism for killing the tumor cells in tissues like lymph nodes or organs. So another way that they're killed is by attracting what are called effector cells. Effector cells are other cells of the immune system, like T cells, natural killer cells, and macrophages. So when rituximab coats the tumor cells, it basically targets them for destruction by attracting these effector cells into the tumor microenvironment. And that leads to some cell killing, is by literally drawing in other cells of the immune system. And these other cells, these effector cells that come in, are trained killers. I mean, that's why these cells exist. It's just that they need a signal to kill, and that's what rituximab provides. And then the third way is there appears to be some direct killing by rituximab. In other words, rituximab binds to the surface of the cell, and the mere binding triggers some intracellular pathway, some intracellular biochemical pathway that's not completely well-defined, actually, but triggering that pathway seems to lower the cell's apoptotic threshold, in other words, the cell's willingness to die. 
and that results in some cell death. So there appears to be three potential ways in which rituximab might kill B cells, a direct effect by recruiting effector cells and by triggering complement. Now, of course, chemotherapeutic agents are also used in these diseases, and I think nurses are pretty tuned in to some of the potential problems that can occur there. But in terms of the mechanism that you just described with rituximab, what about the issue of normal immune function? Do these patients develop infections or are they compromised because of this therapy? Well, this was certainly a major concern when rituximab first came on the market, I guess about a dozen years ago now. You know, what would happen to these patients whose B cells are depleted by the rituximab? There was a very strong concern that infections would be a major problem. And for the most part, that has not happened. So most of the time when we treat patients with single-agent rituximab or rituximab-containing chemotherapy, the risk and the rate of infections does not seem to go up appreciably. Now, one of the strategies that's evolved over the last 10 years is the idea of maintenance rituximab strategy in which patients receive rituximab on an ongoing basis quite often for a year or two years and sometimes more. And so what is the effect of prolonged B-cell depletion? Because if you just give a patient single-agent rituximab in the conventional way, four weekly doses, and then you stop, if you measure B-cell recovery, usually about six months after you've finished the rituximab, the B-cells start replenishing in the blood. So we know the immune system recovers. But if people are getting ongoing rituximab, then that B-cell recovery isn't really allowed to happen. Most of the studies that have done maintenance for two years have shown either no increase in infections or a slight increase in infections. There was a report at ASH, a very large study done by a large European group in which they had given rituximab CHOP chemotherapy to patients with relapsed follicular lymphoma, and then the patients either got no maintenance or two years of maintenance. And when they looked at the rate of serious infections, it was about 2% in the group that received no maintenance and about 9% in the group that received maintenance. So there's at least one study that shows an increased risk of infection with maintenance rituximab. And in my own practice, I certainly have seen that. We do see patients who have depletion of their immunoglobulin levels, meaning their antibody levels, and we see patients who seem to have problems with recurrent bronchitis or sinusitis and things like that. So I do think rituximab does weaken the immune system some, but I would say the effect is not profound or dramatic. A lot of these agents are really interesting and different. And another I know that's used a lot, particularly in mantle cells, bortezomib. Can you explain what that is? Bortezomib is what's called a proteasome inhibitor. So the proteasome is kind of like a garbage disposal inside cells. And the job of the proteasome is to get rid of old proteins. So cells make proteins every day. But the cells don't want these proteins after they've made them. They don't want them to hang around forever. They want the proteins to do their job, and then they need to get rid of them. And so the way they get rid of them is that old proteins get what's called ubiquinated. They get these little modifications made to the protein, and once the protein is ubiquinated, it's targeted for degradation by the proteasome. So then the ubiquinated proteins sort of run through this proteasome structure, which is like a cylinder, or you could think of it like a garbage disposal, and then they get chopped up into little amino acids. And in some cancers, there seems to be some dysregulation of proteins that's mediated by the proteasome. So, for example, I'll give you the mantle cell example. It's been shown that a protein that's made in the cytoplasm and then goes to the nucleus called NF-kappa B, 
it's very highly overexpressed in mantle cell lymphoma compared to normal lymphocytes. And NF-kappa B gets its signal to go to the nucleus via the proteasome. Okay, and so by giving a patient a proteasome inhibitor like bortezomib, you basically block the signal that tells NF-kappa B to go to the nucleus. And so that's one of the theories about why bortezomib might work in mantle cell lymphoma. Now, the proteasome affects a lot of other proteins besides NF-kappa B, but I'm just giving you one example of how a proteasome inhibitor might work in a malignancy. And on the same program, we're talking about bortezomib in relationship to treatment of multiple myeloma. What's seen in terms of side effects and toxicity when this agent's used? One of the major side effects of bortezomib is peripheral neuropathy. That's quite a bit different than the peripheral neuropathy that you might see with vinca alkaloids or taxanes, which is often a sensory neuropathy. The neuropathy that we often see with bortezomib is more painful, affects the feet more often. Patients often describe it as a burning sensation in their feet or perhaps a hot or a cold feeling. And it can be quite problematic for patients. So that's a toxicity that you really have to pay attention to in patients receiving bortezomib. Other things that we see with bortezomib are other effects on the nervous system. So we can sometimes see some autonomic neuropathy. We might see patients who have problems with orthostatic hypotension receiving bortezomib. You know, you have to be careful about that. We've had patients have syncopal episodes and things like that while receiving bortezomib. And so we'll often check on how they're doing. And sometimes we bring them in for IV fluids and things like that. And then there's a certain amount of what I just call asthenia, which is just feeling lousy on it, you know, just low energy level, achy, flu-like. There's a certain amount of that with bortezomib. Those are the big things that patients notice. From a laboratory standpoint, we do see some thrombocytopenia on bortezomib, although rarely does that become clinically significant. Let's talk just briefly about the therapeutic strategy, at least in the newly diagnosed patients, starting out with CLL. How do you think through what you're going to do there? So when you have a new patient with CLL, really the first thing to establish is does the patient need treatment or not? And let me explain that. We know that CLL is not a disease that you can cure with drugs, at least with the drugs we have right now. You can't cure it. So then you have to think about what's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish by treating a patient? Well, what you want to accomplish is to make the patient feel better. If you can't cure them, you at least want them to feel better. And the interesting thing about CLL is that a lot of patients walk in the door with a new diagnosis of CLL and they feel perfect. And the diagnosis was made incidentally. You know, they were going in for their yearly physical and they were found to have a peripheral blood lymphocytosis, a high white blood cell count. Most of them were lymphocytes. The blood got sent for flow cytometry and it showed that these were clonal B cells and the diagnosis of CLL is established. That's a very common way for a patient to walk in the door and see me with a new diagnosis. So if we have a patient who comes in with asymptomatic CLL, then what we try to determine is what's the tumor burden? In other words, do they have a lot of disease? Is the disease about to hurt them? So things we will look at will be the blood counts, how high is the white count, and we'll look very closely at the hemoglobin level and the platelet count, because you can think of the CLL cells as sort of like weeds in a garden, and think of the bone marrow as the garden. And if a patient gets too much CLL, then the weeds start choking out the healthy cells. And 
the manifestation of that is patients become anemic over time or thrombocytopenic, which then leads to clinical problems. So we'll look at that. We'll look and see, does the patient have big bulky lymph nodes that are potentially problematic? Does the patient have a big spleen that's potentially problematic? These are the things that we look at when we have a new patient with CLL. And if the patient has none of those things, we will often start out on a strategy of no initial therapy and we'll just watch the patient. And with that strategy, many, many patients can be watched for years and years before they require therapy. And the advantage to the patient, frankly, is a quality of life advantage. Because if the patient feels perfect right now, well, I can guarantee you they're not going to feel perfect on most therapies. So why take a patient who feels good and make them feel lousy if they don't need the treatment? So that's the first issue. Does the patient need treatment or not? So what would be the kinds of things that would cause you to actually treat a patient with CLL, and what kind of treatment would you consider? So the things that would cause us to treat someone would be progressive anemia, progressive thrombocytopenia, the emergence of bulky lymphadenopathy, the emergence of symptomatic splenomegaly, or the emergence of any symptoms, you know, and so the symptoms could be unexplained weight loss, night sweats, fevers, big loss in energy level. So those are the things we look for in patients with CLL and when in trying to determine when to initiate treatment. What about the actual white blood cell count? Is right. there a number, you know, if it gets to 300,000 and the patient's still feeling well, would you treat just because of the white count? Well, the guidelines from the National Cancer Institute are to treat if the white blood cell count doubles in six months. But certainly we see a lot of patients who don't quite make that threshold of doubling in six months, but the white count is getting up to two, 300,000. And so I think most of us start getting a little nervous at two, 300,000, even if the other parameters haven't been met and think that's a reasonable time to start initiating therapy. What are the usual treatments that you might consider when you're going to treat a patient? So I think probably the most active single agent in CLL is a drug called fludarabine. And that drug's been around for 20 plus years. And it's a very effective treatment for CLL. Fludarabine has some challenges. The drug is hard on the immune system. And so we do run into some problems with opportunistic infections in patients who receive fludarabine. It's hard on the stem cell compartment. And so we do see some patients who have prolonged myelosuppression after fludarabine. But most of the time when we're treating a patient with newly diagnosed CLL, we're thinking about some fludarabine-based combination. So what might you add to fludarabine? Well, almost everybody gets rituximab added now because rituximab added to it seems to confer some benefit in terms of getting into remission and staying in remission and without much cost in terms of toxicity. And then the other thing that very commonly is added is cyclophosphamide. So probably the two most common regimens for CLL in the United States would be to give a fludarabine-rituximab combination or a fludarabine-rituximab-cyclophosphamide, or FCR, that's called combination. And really, it's a trade-off between those two. The FCR regimen appears to be somewhat more efficacious than the FR regimen in terms of getting folks into remission and getting durable remissions, but it comes at somewhat of a price in terms of toxicity. There's certainly more myelosuppression with FCR compared to FR. And so then there's more issues with prolonged cytopenias after therapy, with neutropenic infections, with needing transfusions. So it's a trade-off and it kind of depends on your patient, how 
old or young are they? What are their comorbidities? How well can they handle a more aggressive approach like FCR versus a slightly less aggressive approach like FR? So I think this is where you kind of have to individualize the treatment a little bit. Maybe if you can just provide a very brief snapshot of the usual therapeutic strategies in follicular mantle cell and diffuse large B cell. Yeah, I'll do diffuse large B-cell first. That's the easiest, I think, because there's a well-established standard. So usually when we have a patient with a new diagnosis of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, the standard therapy, at least in the United States, is to give CHOP chemotherapy combined with rituximab. And depending on the stage, we'll sort of dictate how much of it they get. A patient with limited stage disease might receive three or four cycles of CHOP rituximab, followed by some involved field radiotherapy, A patient with advanced stage disease is more likely to receive six to eight cycles, and it's usually six cycles of chaparituximab chemotherapy. That's really the gold standard right now that other regimens have to beat. And we cure a very high fraction of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma with that strategy, but we don't cure everybody. So there still certainly is room for improvement. Mantle cell is a little trickier because there really is no standard. It's really all over the map as to how patients are treated. And My own thought on it right now, based on available data, is I think a very reasonable approach for younger patients with mantle cell, and by younger I'll say under the age of 65, particularly under the age of 60, a reasonable approach would be some sort of aggressive set of reduction, which combines a CHOP-like regimen with high-dose cytarabine, and then once a patient is in remission with that strategy to consolidate that remission with an autologous stem cell transplant, And data would suggest that a high fraction of patients will still be in remission at five years with that strategy. We're not sure if this is a curative approach, but it certainly appears to be an approach that will produce durable remissions. What to do with older mantle cell patients is a little more problematic because many of them can't tolerate such an aggressive strategy. And that's where we find our modified hyper-CVAD strategy that we've developed at the University of Wisconsin or straightforward chop rituximab therapy is a good induction. And then we'll often utilize the strategy of maintenance rituximab for two years to see if we can produce a more durable remission with that strategy. You were talking about bortezomib, and of course this agent's frequently used in multiple myeloma, but it's also a standard part of the approach to mantle cell lymphoma, mainly after the disease progresses following initial therapy. What research questions are currently on the table in this arena? So one of the things we're really interested in sorting out is if Bortezomib can be safely combined with the frontline chemotherapy, and if that combination adds anything, we presented some data from our own institution at ASH this year in which we combined bortezomib with modified hyper-CVAD, and with short follow-up, the results look promising, but I would say certainly not definitive yet, and there are two cooperative group trials that have just closed looking at combining bortezomib with frontline chemotherapy. So I would say right now the jury's still out on that, and I personally would not recommend doing that as part of routine practice until we have some more mature data. Follicular lymphoma, again, is a difficult one to give you a standard on. The practices vary quite a bit from place to place and physician to physician. My own strategy right now in follicular lymphoma is when I have younger patients, say people under the age of 65 who have high tumor burden, I typically will recommend to them that they receive CHOP rituximab chemotherapy. Right now, I'm not giving maintenance rituximab routinely after the CHOP rituximab. There is a very large European study called the PRIMA study that is addressing that question, and we hope to get those results in the next year or two that will tell us if the rituximab maintenance 
adds benefit after CHOP rituximab induction. If I have older patients, I would be more likely to delete the anthracycline and maybe give CVP plus rituximab, just because, again, it's a trade-off between efficacy and toxicity. In my mind, I don't think there's much doubt that the CHOP rituximab is a little more efficacious than CVP rituximab in terms of rates and remission durability, but then, you know, there's a little bit of a trade-off in terms of toxicity. And so again, I think you have to do some individualization depending on the patient sitting in front of you. Those are the two strategies that I like. Other investigators might use a purine analog-based regimen as part of frontline therapy. And then you have the issue of what to do with the follicular lymphoma patients who have low tumor burden, you know, the people who come in that have no symptoms. And that's very controversial, what to do with those patients right now. And reasonable strategies range from watchful waiting approach, which is still a reasonable thing to do, to trying single-agent rituximab, which is also a reasonable thing to do, to just going right into something like CHOP rituximab chemotherapy, which is also a reasonable thing to do. And I know there are very smart lymphoma doctors all over the country that have different approaches to that patient population. And right now, we don't know which is the best.